turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 6, this familiar passage, well-known passage, informative passage, Isaiah chapter 6. Welcome those of you visiting. We're going through the book of Isaiah, and uh, the first part of the book book of Isaiah is um, part of the book where God's kingship is put on display. So we're calling this series from chapters 1 through 37, the book of the king. And you see that clearly here, even at the beginning of our chapter this morning. I've entitled this message, A Commission from Our Holy King. A Commission from Our Holy King. Please follow along as I read Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Again, a commission from our holy king. There are... uh, Traditions in the Christian church where uh, sometimes there's a commissioning service that's, that's held in order to commission a missionary out to the field or maybe a new elder. Uh, some of you may have heard of it as an ordination service. Maybe it's a new pastor in a new work. I remember um, being prayed for uh, one Sunday evening right before we moved to Prescott nine and a half years ago being prayed for at our church in Los Angeles. The elders gathered around, my wife and I, uh, our pastor praying for the next work that we were going to go do here. I still remember uh, that time, remember elements of that prayer, and in many ways that was like a commissioning send-off. It was a prayer to go and serve in this way. And you know that when you were baptized, when you became a Christian and publicly identified with Christ, part of that baptism was a public acknowledgement that I am with Christ and therefore you are about 
His mission and serving Him. You see that even in the New Testament when people are reconciled to God, when people are uh, one to Christ or come to Christ, they are then given a place to serve. They're, they're sent out and they end up edifying the body and bringing the gospel to the lost. That, that's the plan. Israel was meant to be that shining light to the nations as they were brought through the sea, saved, and then they're meant to show God off to the nations. They largely failed. God has gone to the Gentiles, and as they are reconciled to Christ, they are meant to be a kingdom of priests to God, meant to be a holy nation, to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ to the world. So that is us. We are saved to proclaim. And so all of us, in a sense, are commissioned by our holy king. And in this passage, we get an example of Isaiah's commission by the king. As we look through it, some things will be certainly true of only Isaiah in his time, but a lot of the elements of his call to serve his king are true of us as well. So again, a commission from our holy king. Isaiah's commission to God's service, and as we consider his commission, let's also consider our commission. Again, I referred just a little bit ago to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but I want to read that for you just to kind of set in your minds the fact that we also have this commission to make God known. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in this passage, Isaiah chapter 6, we see two areas for the commissioned of God to consider. Two things to think about. From Isaiah 6, and then as you go out of these doors and live as light in the world, keep considering these two things. And the first is our communion with our holy king. God is displayed as glorious, as holy, as king, and it's a beautiful section of Scripture. And this is the place to start, to consider God himself, our relationship to him, who he is, who we are. So our communion with our holy king. This is found in verses 1 to 7. Isaiah's commission starts by seeing the Lord sitting upon his throne. Now, we, we've gone through chapters 1 through 5, and they are quite dismal. Few bright spots here and there, prophetic bright spots, chapter 2, chapter 4, but it's pretty dismal. The nation is a mess. The nation has been a mess under King Uzziah. Now, they weren't outwardly a mess. They were actually thriving financially. They had peace and security through much of Uzziah's rule. You can go and read 2 Chronicles 26 in your own time, but that kind of details the 52-year year reign of King Uzziah, and it was largely a prosperous reign. He rebuilt cities of Judah, made them strong. There's actually a part in 2 Chronicles 26 that says that he developed military technology and weaponry to help defend Jerusalem and Judah. They were strong. They were safe. They were even thriving financially. And partway through King Uzziah's life, this was probably later in life, he had accomplished a lot. He was popular in Judah. He actually went into the temple to offer incense to the Lord. And you might think, that's special. That's sweet. That sounds worshipful. No, it was sinful. He was not allowed to do that. That was only for the 
Levites to do. But he'd had success and he was popular. Certainly God wouldn't mind if he went and offered this act of worship. Well, he did. And God sought to it that Uzziah lived the rest of his days as a leper. Actually had to move out of his home, serve the end of his days as a leper, and he died. Uzziah was largely a popular king. Got too big for his britches, ended up dying. And it's that setting to which we get Isaiah 6. Isaiah's call to public ministry, call to be a prophet, starts with him seeing not King Uzziah, but the eternal king sitting on his throne. There would have been mourning over King Uzziah. There would have been fear. Now that he's dead, what will happen next? Will we be safe? Will we be secure? Will we have enough? Isaiah's commission starts with him seeing the king of Israel, the king of the world, and getting the idea that God's on his throne. Uzziah may die, kings, leaders, presidents come and go, but the Lord Jesus Christ, as John reveals in John 12, God himself is on his throne. He's always on his throne. God is never nudged off of his throne. He's never falling off of it, pushed off. He's always in charge of everything. He's on his throne, and that's what Isaiah sees at the very beginning. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. So he sees the Lord sitting on his throne. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. In the ancient Near East, when kings would sit on their thrones, they would sit on a raised pedestal to show that they are the ones in charge. Everyone else is below. Now, I've told you about this nation that's kind of building their weaponry, building their might, kind of in the background of this part of Isaiah's prophecy, the nation of Assyria. Well, you can go and find Assyrian art from back in the day, and you can see their kings sitting high on a throne. So, the king of Assyria sat high on a throne. They were pretty strong and powerful during this time. But Isaiah sees a vision of God himself being high and on the throne, higher than anybody else. That's why we call Jesus Christ the king of kings, the king over all kings. Not just the king who's higher than them, but the king who actually rules all of them. That's the picture that Isaiah shows us. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The temple was the dwelling place of God's people, the dwelling place of all who are right with him, and the train of his robe. The train of his robe, the, that idea, again, in the ancient Near East was the extent of their rule. Their, their robe and its length would reflect how powerful they were and just how much territory they ruled over. Well, the train of his robe fills every part of his people's life. He's in control of it all. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. These are the attendants of God. They stand before him. They, they fly before him. They sing his praises. They're called the burning ones. As he is hot with his glory, his greatness, and all that he is, they who are in his presence are also on fire with his glory, zealous. There's an element of them protecting people from coming into his presence. So these are his attendants. They're ready to do his will. We know that angels, the word angel means messenger. God often sends 
angels to do things on His behalf. You'll see that a little bit later in our passage. But these seraphim are, are there with God, each having six wings. With two, He covered His face, not looking straight at God. No one can look straight at God and see all, who he is, all that He is and live. So they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. It's not their desires for their feet. It's not their plan for their life that they'll follow. No, that their feet are covered. They do His bidding. And with two, they fly. They're quick to respond to where God sends them. Verse 3, and one called to another. They're not just ready to do God's bidding. They're not just ready to be in service to Him, but they're also in awe of Him and adoration of Him. That they sing to one another about Him. One called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We get this first picture of who God is in the book of Isaiah, and we learn that He is holy, holy, holy. He is unlike any other. Holy, separate. He's unique. He stands above any other. Take the most loving person that's ever lived in human history. That person doesn't even compare to the love of God. Take the most just person, the most powerful person who's ever lived in human history. They do not compare to the God who is just, the God who is powerful. Take any characteristic of any person, and they are totally unlike the perfection of God having that characteristic. He's different. He's above everybody. He's unique. Take the moral character of one of the greatest people to ever live. God is different than them. He alone has the moral character that nobody else has. He's unique. There's none like Him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He's also powerful. He commands the armies of heaven. He tells His angels what to do. They do His work. He's in charge. So this morally upright God, this morally upright being who is powerful, who is eternal, kings come and go, like I said, He's always on the throne. This is who the seraphim are singing about to one another. And the, the word is repeated. You know this, oftentimes in the Scriptures when the words are repeated, they're repeated for emphasis. They also show magnitude. We might say good, better, best. That's what holy, holy, holy does in Hebrew. It's, it's, he's, he's holy in the highest magnitude. Holy, holy, holy. There isn't another place in Scripture where an emphasis is made three times. You hear a lot of two-time emphases. Simon, Simon, other things like that. But this is the only place where three times this is emphasized. You can see this in Revelation 4. You can see this elsewhere. God is known to be holy. They are captivated with Him. The whole earth is full of His glory. He's not just in charge of His people, but He also rules and reigns over all the nations. Now, it doesn't always look that way, does it? That's why Isaiah is getting this vision of God in heaven who is in charge of the whole earth. His people on earth don't always think that. doesn't always feel like that. That's why it's so important to get this vision, because it's true. 
when next November comes. And you're thinking, I don't know that God's really in charge here. He is. Go back to Isaiah 6. He's got plans. He's doing something. He knows what's happening. He's in charge. Verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Evidently, He's in charge, and He's also angry. When people see God and, and things aren't right with those people, there's a certain anger that is pictured here from God. The foundation of the threshold, so this is the temple, the, the whole temple itself, the foundations, the doors, all of it is shaking at the voice of Him who called, and, at the, and the house was filled with smoke. There's a certain unapproachability with God. There's a certain anger that keeps people from Him. He is perfectly just. All wrongs done before Him are a problem. And so, when Isaiah sees a picture of the glorious God, a vision of the glorious God, he understands that God's angry. He's powerful. There's a problem. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me. Of course Isaiah did. He was in the presence of greatness, holiness, and his first thought wasn't, look how great I am. I'm better than other people. His first thought is, I'm in trouble. Woe is me, for I am lost. Or you might have the translation, undone. The idea is, I don't belong. I don't belong. I'm different than him. He's holy. I'm different. I don't belong where he is. Woe, cursed. There's a certain scariness to that. I don't belong here. I'm in trouble that I am seeing this. Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah explains why he's in trouble, because he's sinful. And he talks about a certain part of him that's sinful, his mouth. His mouth is sinful. Oftentimes, our mouth is the last thing we think about when we think of our own sin. We think of all sorts of other sins that, that plague us, but oftentimes the mouth isn't considered as highly as it should be. Well, here it is. Isaiah knew that he had a problem with his mouth. I don't know what the sin was. Was it expressing his displeasure with God? Was it gossip? Was it slander? Was it crudeness? I, I don't know, but he knew that he had a sin problem, and it was with his mouth, with his lips. I'm in trouble because of how I've talked. And you know, all of us are in trouble with God because of how we've spoken. All of us. But Isaiah knows it, and he knows that his problem is something that's part of his society also. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He sees this powerful King, and he says, I'm in trouble because of how I talk. And so are my people. When you see God rightly, you also see yourself rightly. And you see the, the chasm between you both. The glorious, perfect God and, and ourself. And Isaiah sees this. 
And then verse 6. This God isn't just just, powerful, holy, and angry at the sin in the world. But as soon as Isaiah acknowledges how guilty he is, a seraphim flies at God's command and goes to explain mercy to Isaiah. That's what our God is like. Powerful, strong, angry, just, righteous, knows everything, and then a sinner admits their guilt. Go tell him he's forgiven. Go tell him that he's been atoned for. Go tell him he's not guilty. Isaiah expresses, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You just hear this confession come from Isaiah. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, again, who have wings to go at God's command. One of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Seraphim only go where God tells them to go. The fact that this seraphim came to cleanse, express the forgiveness that Isaiah had, the fact that he went to Isaiah meant that God had sent him there. You see that this is a beautiful thing to see in the Scriptures. When sinners confess their inadequacy before God, he quickly goes to them with comfort and mercy. It's beautiful. I hope everyone hears that this morning. As soon as the sinner realizes who God is and who they are, and they express that, woe is me, for whatever reason, and they express that to God, God goes to them with mercy and grace. You hear Peter do that in Luke chapter 5. He's fishing, and he gets a glimpse of who the Lord Jesus is and His power. Jesus tells him where to fish. They haven't caught any fish all night long. And then Jesus says, let's go out and let go fishing again. The last thing they would want to do. They go out, Jesus says, put your nets over here. They take in the fish. Peter doesn't say, we're rich. He falls to the ground in the boat and says, depart from me, I'm a sinner. And the Lord puts his hand on him. And you know what he says? Don't be afraid. As soon as he confesses his sin, as soon as he sees the chasm between him and Christ and acknowledges it, don't be afraid. King David misled a nation, the blood of Uriah on his hand, took Bathsheba as his wife, lied about it. Over a year, nothing done about it, continues to rule and reign. Nathan the prophet comes to him, makes it known that God knows the sin. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Immediately, Nathan the prophet, again, one sent by God, the Lord's forgiven your sin. The immediacy of the mercy upon a confession of inadequacy. Please hear that. Isaiah knows he's in trouble. He expresses it. A seraphim flies to him from God's presence. The seraphim who'd been praising God interrupts that for a moment and flies to bring comfort to a sinner. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, the altar where animal sacrifices were, were made. The altar where something would die 
because there's death needed for sin. When you offend a holy God, death is what's required. And so this altar would constantly have animals put on it because the people were saying, we know that we've sinned against God and there's death for sin, but He will allow us to be in His presence through death. It's from that altar that a coal's taken and brought to Isaiah, and it touches his lips. He touched my mouth, verse 7, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. There's a purification that happens there. there there's, there's the fact that that altar where the sacrifice is made, something from that altar has, has been the means of Isaiah being right with God now. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. It, it's more than just that bad word you said, that way that you gossiped about whatever, whatever that act of sin from Isaiah's mouth had been. It, it's, it's more than that. The, that was just the expression of what's in his heart. His heart is black with guilt. So it's not just he's forgiven you for saying that thing about her. It's who you are inside. The sickness of you inside is taken away. Your guilt is taken away, which means you're innocent. Isaiah knows himself to be guilty right away when he sees God. Now God sends a messenger to say, tell him he's innocent. That's what God does. That's who God is. It's a beautiful picture of our God. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for, covered. And I'm not talking about sins covered up like politicians cover up sins. I'm not talking about those cover-ups. It's like when you have a debt and someone says, I'm paying the debt. I'm covering your debt. It's not as if someone hides the debt and it's never taken care of. No, no, no. I myself am paying for it, therefore it's covered. So justice is done. The debt is being paid, just not by you. That's the idea of covering atonement. We know that God the Father would send Jesus Christ, His Son, to atone for our sins. His blood would cover our debt. He would be executed in our place. Therefore, our sins have been covered. They've been taken care of. The penalty's been paid. Well, God tells Isaiah through the seraphim that you're no longer guilty your debt's been covered, and what comfort that would have given Isaiah. There's no greater comfort in the world to know that you're in trouble with the holy God and now that you're comforted by the holy God. Just think of that reality. All of us are born in trouble with a holy God, and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that holy God speaks comfort to us. Isaiah's story is our story if you're a Christian. This is our story. I know I'm lost. I know I'm undone. I know I don't deserve to be in God's presence. I know that I can't stand in God's presence. But if He would be merciful, then I can. And He is. I love this. I have to read on ahead with you. Isaiah 57. Later on in this book, we get this prophecy. Listen to this. Isaiah 57, verse 15. <clears throat> We're reminded again of God's being highly exalted and holy. 
Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Sounds familiar? What does he say? What does this high and lifted up one do? What does he say? I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. What a beautiful picture. God is high and transcendent, holy in charge, powerful, just, righteous, and we're in trouble. And he says, but I'll tell you where else I dwell. You get someone in response to that that says, I'm low, I don't belong, I'm in trouble before a holy God. He says, I dwell there too. What a great picture. This is the God we serve. Just, strong, powerful, rights all wrongs. And when people cry out to him and say, I don't belong with you, you should, you should damn me to hell forever. I, I am undone. I am unclean. And we say that to him. He gives mercy. What a God. And he gives it to Isaiah. So this is the first area for the commissioned ones to consider, the presence of our holy king. If you're a Christian, you've there's been a time in your life where if you've understood that you're in trouble with the holy God and then you're introduced to Jesus Christ and you realize, now I'm comforted by the holy God through Jesus Christ. This is what Isaiah experienced in his call. And this is where we start. The rest of the passage we're going to go through speaking up for God. Pointing to him, pointing others to him. But this is where we start. We remember our communion with God. We remember where we stand with Him. We were once in trouble. Now our guilt's been atoned for. Our sin's been atoned for. And that's now the relationship we have with God. One where we are now His to do with whatever He wants. I surrender all. As a child of God, as, as a redeemed sinner, I now commune with Him. I'm in a right relationship with Him. I can be in his presence. This is where we start. All of us want to be effective evangelists. We want our kids to come to Christ, our grandkids to come to Christ, we want our neighbors to come to Christ. We are here to make him known. And it started because he made himself known to us. He forgave us, and now we want that message to get to them. Again, this isn't just for prophets. This isn't just for pastors. I read to you 1 Peter 2. 9 and 10. This is for all believers. You are a chosen race. That's, that's a communion passage. It's who you are. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You're with Him. Take comfort in that. So that you may proclaim His excellencies. There's the mission. But before we get to the mission, get yourself to the communion. I had a pastor who discipled me that would tell me that. He would say, communion before commission. You spend time with the Lord. You remind yourself of who you are with Him because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You pray to Him. You talk to Him. You sing to Him. Then you're commissioned. Now go out and serve Him. Don't get those backwards. Don't, don't start with your service. I'm, I'm here. What am I going to do? Send me somewhere. I'm pretty great. No, no, no. 
I'm a sinful man. You're a gracious God. You've made me right with you by your generosity. I love you. You listen to me. You speak to me. Now send me. It starts with communion. And I think this is a good word for parents. It starts our own evangelism of our own kids, our own desire to make Him known to them, starts with our own communion. As we are satisfied with Him, that will leak out and spill out and will point them to the satisfaction that Jesus Christ gives. It starts with our communion with Him. Forgiven saints, forgiven people, by the mercy of God. One more thing before I go to point number two. I'm struck by how the seraphim are singing to each other, holy, holy, holy. (laughs) They have a certain awe of God that's shown there. And again, you can see this in Revelation 4, the same song is being sung to God, holy, 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 which allows me to conclude that this is evidently a song that always goes on in heaven. And sometimes I think we as who we are right now before heaven, we kind of have these limitations on our mind. And if I told you, you're always going to be singing holy, holy, holy to God, you might think, I know I'm supposed to be excited about that, but that doesn't, I mean, it sounds kind of like it, okay, we've been doing this for a few hours now. It can kind of sound repetitive, and oftentimes repetitive things lose their excitement. Not with God. Who He is is always satisfying more and more and more. Let me ask you this. Those of you who have been in Christ for a long time, and you read and are learning more things in the Bible, isn't it exciting to learn more and more and more? That's the idea of heaven. There's this constant fascination with Him. It doesn't, who He is doesn't diminish in our eyes over time. You just, you know, when you're singing and a song goes on for like 14 minutes, and you're like, man, we've been singing the same thing over and over again. Here and now, we feel that that's diminishing and it's kind of joy to us. Yeah, it's because you're looking at a stage with backdrops and people and stuff. But when you see God, a picture of who He is, and you're in His presence physically speaking, there's no, oh, this is kind of getting old. There's none of that in heaven. Think of uh, when you have a book that you've read and you're like, this is the best book I've ever read. This is wonderful. And you're halfway through and normally in books you're like, man, when am I going to be done with this? But this book you're halfway done, and you're like, I don't want this to end. That's a picture of what heaven will be like. Or, or a show that you like. What a great show. This, it's done. Are they going to come out with the next, another season? Or I can't wait for that. That's the idea. It, it just only gets better and better and better. That's what it's like with God. So no wonder they're singing holy, holy, holy. And the only thing that interrupts that is when God tells the seraphim to go and comfort a sinner who knows that they're a sinner. So the first thing we consider is our communion with God, who we are before Him. Now next, let's consider our commission as we look at Isaiah's commission. His sending out, 8 to 13. Isaiah is made aware of his mission. 
He was made aware that he's sinful. He, he was first made aware of God's holiness and who he is. Then he was made aware of his own sin. Then he was made aware of the fact that his guilt is atoned for, and now he's put into service. And I love that he actually even volunteers for the service. Of course he does. He is thrilled to be in the presence of and right before the holy and eternal king. And so the logical thing is, what can I do? Where do what do you want me to do for you? Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and, to, and who will go for us? There's lots of debate about who the us is, who's God talking to. Is it the other members of the Trinity? I think it's the, the heavenly host, the angels around him. I get that because 1 Kings 22 gives us that language. God's speaking to the heavenly host about what he's going to do on earth, who will go for us. Either way, God is looking to send someone to do the earth good, or in this case, to bring about a temporary judgment. But God has a plan, and He wants someone to go and do something. I find it interesting here, again, that sometimes the Lord uses seraphim, but when the Lord wants a message declared, He uses people. That's us. You could say, how's God going to get the gospel to this world in 2024? Well, let's wait for an angel to come and bring the gospel. Well, that's not how He does it. He sends people to bring the gospel. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah speaking, here I am, send me. Of course, again, he would say that. Newly saved by God, newly having his sin atoned for by God, he wants to be in the service of God. This is the heart of every believer. Because of how you've loved me and saved me, I want to be used for you. Whatever that may look like. Verse 9, and he said, go. And you can see Isaiah getting his Bible ready. Yes, here we go. God's sending me somewhere. Isaiah might even think, I'm going to preach to a people and all sorts of people are going to be saved. Yes, where are you going to send me? Go and say to these people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. It's like a preacher's worst nightmare. <laughs> you pray, Lord, let them hear and understand your word and respond to your word and worship you because of your word. But God sends him on a mission to where he'll preach and they'll get further and further away from God. Go and say to this people, the people of Judah, keep on hearing. Listen, listen up. I got a word from the Lord. Here it is. Declare the word. And then they don't get it spiritually. It doesn't connect to the heart. They might hear it in their ears, but it doesn't get to the heart. That's Isaiah's ministry. Go and say to these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. God has been teaching these people for years and years and years and years, and they keep stiff-arming him and looking to other saviors. This isn't God bringing the gospel to one person and then saying, I'm going to make it so you can't hear anymore. He just kind of speaks at one time and then judges them as if God is unfair somehow. God has been proclaiming his salvation to them over and over and over and over again. They reject, so then he will reject them. They'll no longer be able to hear because they've been closing their ears. So as if they're doing this 
And God says, I'm just going to make this permanent. Verse 10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is judgment for having rejected for so long. That's what this is. This is a reminder to us, even what we're doing now, there's something powerful going on. This is not just routine. Ah, I heard another sermon. I'll open my Bible. Wednesday morning, read another passage. There's always something happening when we are in front of the Word of the Lord. There's either a softening of us or a hardening of us. There's never a time when nothing happens. Never. That's what it means later on in Isaiah when he says his word doesn't return void. It means that it will always do something. Sometimes it's a hardening and sometimes it's a softening. But you never come to the word of God and go away neutral, unchanged. Something's always happening. This passage, 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10, all four Gospels cite this passage and the end of the book of Acts. This is a big deal in the Bible, verses 9 and 10. In the Gospels, <coughs> excuse me, in the Gospels, verses 9 and 10, you can look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Verses 9 and 10 are cited after Jesus has been proclaiming his salvation to a people for a good amount of time. Again, Jesus has been patient, proclaiming, proclaiming. They don't listen. They won't hear. He proclaims. They don't listen. They won't hear. He proclaims. They don't listen. They won't hear. And he cites this passage as a warning. You're not going to be able to hear because you've refused to hear. The book of Acts, the, the book about the, after Jesus ascended to heaven, his disciples then go on a mission to make him known. And they go to they first start in Jerusalem, then Judea. So they start with God's people, chosen people, Israel. They start with them. They go to Judea. Then they go to Samaria. We're moving further and further out. Then the uttermost parts of the earth. And as they go in Jerusalem, Judea, many, most of the Jewish people reject the apostles also. Not everyone does. A remnant of them are saved. But most of them reject and reject and reject. And then in Acts 28, you see the end of the book of Acts as the gospel's going out to the world and, and Thessalonians, Greek believers are starting to believe and Corinthians are starting to believe and some Jews are starting to believe. You, you see the gospel spread, the salvation of God being accepted, listened to, adhered to. Paul, at the end of the book of Acts, is in Rome and he's talking to some Jewish people. I'll just read it for you instead of trying to paraphrase everything. Acts 28. You don't need to turn there, but listen as I read this. Acts 28, Paul in Rome. Twenty-three. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them. So Paul's in on house, in house arrest. Morning to evening, they expounded, he expounded to them that testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So, so Paul's arrested, house arrest, 
believers are sending other Jews who don't believe. They're sending them to him in Rome. Just listen to what he has to say. And he's going and opening the Old Testament and showing the connection to Jesus of Nazareth. That's what's happening here. And it says this, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. What did he say? What was the last thing he said as they departed saying, no, no, I'm not going to believe that. Here's what Paul said. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Paul gives this same warning from Isaiah. What are we to do with that? When you hear the word of God, respond to the word of God. And if you're a Christian, you've done that. You've heard the message of salvation from God, salvation found in His Son, Jesus Christ, and you're not one of those who's disbelieved, you've actually believed. But as you speak to other people on behalf of God, and they say, I'm not believing, no, 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 there may be a time where God finally hardens their heart. We don't know when that time is, so we keep preaching. We keep speaking to neighbors, relatives, friends. We keep speaking. That, that's not ours to understand when that time happens. That's the Lord's doing. But just know that when you speak about Jesus, it's either softening or hardening. And Isaiah was given a ministry that was full of hardening as a judgment on Judah. So he asked the question in 11, which is the question we all probably would ask. How long, O oh Lord? I mean, am I doing this for three weeks? Three, how, how long? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. What, what's God talking about there? Exile. You're going to preach that message. They're not going to believe in me as their salvation, me as their king. They're going to turn to other kings, and their land is going to be destroyed. People will be taken away off to other lands. Now, again, we've been led to believe, oh, that's probably Assyria that's going to do that. The amazing thing in the book of Isaiah is it's actually not Assyria. Why? This is beautiful. We'll get to it later. I but I have to give you a preview. The reason it's not Assyria is because God's going to rescue them from Assyria to say, see, I'm your king who saves. They are the first known superpower of the world, and I saved you from them. See later on in, at the end of chapters like 37 to 39, I've saved you from them. But the people of God still will not trust in Him. So He will send another people to take them away. That's the Babylonians. We'll get to that. But God's a Savior. Trust in Him. They wouldn't, so they will lose their land. They'll lose their temple. It'll be destroyed. People will be taken away. It'll be desolate. The Babylonians will come and do that. And we know from human history that happened. Verse 13 but it's not all doom and gloom. 
And though a tenth remain in it, there's a remnant. There's a, there's a remaining few there. And though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again. That tenth, those remaining, they'll still go through difficulty themselves. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled, the holy seed is its stump. So it's this picture of everything in Jerusalem being destroyed, tabernacle or, or temple down, homes down, people taken away, but there's a little bit of life still remaining there. It's not easy for those people, but there's still a little bit of life. It's like the oak tree that's come down, but oh, look at the stump. Something might happen. Hold on. And we know that there would be a remnant of people who were saved. Jerusalem would ultimately be rebuilt again. The people of God would again worship Him there again. God knows that. That's part of His plan. So it's not all doom and gloom for Isaiah. It's as if he's saying, you preach, they're not going to listen, but there will be a little sign of life here. Just see what I do. That's what God is saying. So Isaiah's given communion with God, and then he's given a commission before God. And so it's at this point we say to ourselves, I mean, is this my commission? I've been saved by God. I know myself to be a sinner in light of who He is, but I know He saved me. Now I'm to proclaim His excellencies. It feels like I've got kind of an Isaiah ministry. Uh, every time I talk about Jesus, no one listens. Well, I want to give you some hope. See, we're not done with commissions in Isaiah. There's another commission in the book of Isaiah that you have to see. Turn over to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Now just get ready, because after Isaiah 61, I'm going to take you to another passage in the New Testament. Okay, so you ready for this? Hang in there. Don't fall asleep on me. There's another commission in Isaiah. Isaiah's commission seems rather dismal in many ways. A little bit of hope, but largely dismal. Well, someone else is commissioned in Isaiah 61. God has a servant that one day he'll bring to the earth and he'll give him a commission. We know who that is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus says. This is a new era now. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison of those who are bound. Now, it, in its original meaning, he's certainly talking about those who are then exiled into Babylon. God's going to get his people, who he's allowed to go into exile because of their sinfulness, and he's going to bring them back home. He's going to open the prison gates, bring them back home. So there's this new servant that has a new commission. Isaiah is going to preach and they're going to be hardened and God's going to judge them. But then God in his goodness and mercy is going to send another prophet to proclaim. And he's going to say, come out, come back home, come back home, come back and be with your God. Verse two, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, not his judgment, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He's going to judge his enemies and to comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress of, instead of ashes, and oil of gladness instead of mourning, 
and garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now listen to this. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. Isaiah 6, you preach and even the strong oak trees are going to come down in judgment. There will be a little bit of life though, but that oak tree is going to look pretty bad. Isaiah 61, this new servant, Jesus Christ, is going to proclaim God's salvation and they're going to be oaks of righteousness. They're going to be rebuilt. There's going to come strength and life and fruit from this. There's, a new, there's another commission in Isaiah. So Isaiah is commissioned largely with a message of judgment, but Jesus Christ comes with a message of God's favor and the opportunity to be an oak of righteousness. Now, turn over to Luke chapter 4. Seven hundred years later, a young baby is born in Bethlehem. He grows up, and around 30 years old, his heavenly father, because he is the servant of the father, his heavenly father calls him into his public ministry, kind of like his heavenly father called Isaiah back into ministry 700 years before. And God the Father calls his son into ministry, and we come to this in Luke chapter 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled it. Jesus literally did this 2,000 years ago in Nazareth. He unrolls the scroll, and he goes to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, this young man says in Nazareth, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Not a message of judgment, a message of good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is the good part right here. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. You, you just imagine silence in that synagogue. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's time. It's time for the Lord's favor, not his judgment, to be proclaimed. God is sending me, Jesus would say, to show you the favor of God is available to you. We know Jesus' message, repent and believe the kingdom of God is here. Salvation of God is here. That's where we're at. That's the message we proclaim. The me our message is one, not of doom and gloom. Our message is one that says you can be right with God. God can be favorable to you if you would trust in the salvation that he offers through Jesus the Son who died and rose again for sinners. That's the message. But if you reject, there is a hardening and ultimately woe to you. And in your sin you will die and suffer forever because you rejected 
the goodness of God that he offered. So friend, we're here, we're in Prescott to offer the world God's favor through Jesus Christ. Think of your communion with God, what he's done in your life, and now be about his commission, pointing to Jesus Christ, the one that offers favor. Around the time I was going into pastoral ministry, I received a note, I still have it somewhere, with the lines of Charles Wesley's famous hymn. I thought I would read these two verses, and maybe this could serve as somewhat of a prayer for you. I think today as we see Isaiah's commission in Isaiah 6, it'd be good for us to, all of us who are believers, to remember, again, our relationship with God through the gospel. He's atoned for our sins. And then, God, where would you have me serve? How would you have me serve? Allow me to serve and to point people to the favor that you offer. I think it's good for us to think through that today. So I'll read this line from Charles Wesley's hymn. A charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, a never-dying soul to save and fit it for the sky. To serve the present age, my calling to fulfill. O may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Let's pray. Father, we know that you put Isaiah into service, but you're not done speaking. Isaiah's gone. Your son came and gave us the message of salvation. So, Father, allow us to enjoy our communion with you our right relationship to you, the powerful, sovereign King, and allow us to speak for you, knowing that you offer hope and we are the ones to bring it to people. So, Father, use this church evangelistically to help rescue those who are poor in spirit, to those who are in trouble with the holy God, so that they may be right with him and enjoy him forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.